Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm speaking with Margaret Galvin, author of Invisible Archives. Invisible Archives is published by the University of Minnesota Minnesota Press in September 2023. In this book, Margaret Galvin explores a number of feminist and cultural touchstones, the feminist sex wars, the HIV AIDS crisis, the women in print movement and countercultural grassroots periodical networks. And she examines how visual culture interacts with these pivotal moments. She goes deep into the records to bring together a decade's worth of research in grassroots and university archives that include comics, collages, photographs, drawings, and other image text media produced by women, including Hannah Alderfer, Beth Jaker, Mary Beth Nelson, Roberta Gregory, Lee Mars, Alison Bechdel, Gloria Anzaldúa, and Nan Golden. The art highlighted in Invisible Archives demonstrates how women represented their bodies and sexualities on their own terms and created visibility for new diverse identities, thus serving as blueprints for future activism and advocacy, work that is urgent now more than ever as LGBTQ plus and women's rights face challenges and restrictions across the nation. Margaret Galvin is Assistant Professor of English at the University of Florida. Margaret, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. And before we dive into talking about your book, I would love if you could share a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your work with queer and feminist cultural production. Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California, uh, Los Angeles area. Um, went to University of Southern California for undergrad, uh, then moved cross-country, the grad center at CUNY for um, grad school in New York City, um, which is, uh, you know, a, a really rich place for folks who are invested in, like, social justice. When I got there, um, sort of in the middle of, like, my studies, you know, in uh, 2011, Occupy movement was starting down on Wall Street, um, and folks were, you know, advocating for, um, you know, social reform, for being aware of issues of class, and sort of this very visible way. Um, there are other instances, too, like lots of sort of activist structures, but I, I knew I was, like, in the right place of folks who were really, you know, invested um, in these things, and, you um, in a place in New York that I think New York and just in general is like very well in sort of documenting um, histories, what's going on, like, you know, that's the center of media production. So you sort of see what's going on. Um, but, you know, I have always been interested in, um, since I was very um, young, like women's stories and reading women's stories and um, being, you know, engaged with them, but also um, being aware that there was more than I was able to see. I also grew up reading comic books and um, the X-Men, which was great. Um, but, you know, to find um, when I, um, turned to grad school that there is, you know, these comics that have been produced in the 70s and 80s and even 90s that I didn't have access to as a child that I wasn't aware of um, was something that's very powerful for me. Um, I've been actually thinking a lot um, recently with all that's going on with like LGBTQ youth, book bannings across the U.S. Um, something has been like rattling around in my head is this um, uh, the, the when um, Queer Nation, which is this like LGBTQ group that sort of came out of ACT UP, um, sort of started advocating in the in the early '90s. They handed around this pamphlet called "Queers Read This," and there's this like sentence. And if you, I'm just gonna read the two sentences I love. Um, it's just you know very um, this manifesto, and they say, um, "I hate then 12 years of public education. I was never taught about queer people." I hate that I grew up thinking I was the only queer in the world. And I hate um, uh, even more that um, queer kids still grew up this way, right? And so that's like 1990 um, and we're like 30 years hence. And I mean, that's still the fact for a lot of folks. I mean, there's been um, some turnaround, um, but so, 
you know, I'm thinking about how, you know, a lot of these materials, these are sort of, sort of receded from public view, but also there are other sorts of um, barriers in place for entry for different individuals to seeing and encountering this work. Um, so like my niece uh, in California actually gets taught about LGBTQ history, but that's not the case um, in a a lot of places in this country or is becoming less the case right now. Um, and so thinking, you know, from the perspective, just thinking back to when I was young, um, you know, the the difficulty of finding this work that I felt was so resonant about women and their lives and their sexualities um, that would, you know, some of this is like autobio, in some ways it you are interested in writing about it because it speaks to you, right? But not having access to it. So those are some things about me, things I'm thinking about right now, definitely informed by where we are um, sort of politically. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so then I guess shifting to this book, Invisible Archives asserts that we need to look really closely at the visual production of queer and feminist artists in order to understand the full scope of feminist organizing and community building. So could you speak more about what brought you to that realization and why you felt it was so important to write a whole book about this? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm from um, a literature background um, and traditionally or back in the day sort of the literature you'd write literature about like you know the one great single author or you know when someone makes it they're sort of like st stood up as like you know singularly um important but like that's never exactly what's happening right like there's always sort of a community around them that Im informs their work and supports them and so i was really interested in sort of like sort of the whole picture right? Um, even if they're doing their work like solo authored, how are they being shaped by what's happening around them? And so, you know, um, less interested in sort of like just analyzing the plot of a book and holding it up as exceptional and more interested in like um, what you might call like the social history of how it gets made, um, uh, how artists work, listening to the artists themselves about their process, how they work across different forms for the purposes of social justice. Um, and so, you know, I was really wanted to sort of broaden from just understanding like the narrative and its implications, but thinking about, um, you know, the moment it was produced, who is produced for, um, how it also might still resonate. Some of these texts also, um, some of them slip from, view but then there's also other ones where the person you know continues to be very um impactful and what is it about um sort of how it's formed that was so influential and that continues to be so influential and what is it that still speaks um and so i sort of like broadening out from that um not that people in literature do that anymore but sort of like the disciplinary background um and sort of um going into a different space because when you start to look in the archives specifically even for one artist you see that there's so many other people there and so how do you honor all those other people that you're finding that are you know right next to um and you know in, in conversation with the person that you're looking at totally i mean i i come from the world of libraries and librarianship is not english literature but it reminds me of like conversations about understanding that literacy is more than just like words <laughs> and there are so many kinds of literacies and i really saw this like um, focus on on understanding different literacies in in this book and like reading a really wide variety of things. Um, so let's talk about the the chapters um, of this book. Um, each of these looks at the art of one artist or a group of artists, and then the archives and archival practices that have made space for those materials. And so in the first chapter, you wrote about the work of Hannah Alderford, Beth Jaker, and Mary Beth Nelson on designing the diary of a conference on sexuality for the 1982 Barnard Conference on Sexuality. So could you explain to listeners a little bit what that publication was and um, how these artists used collage specifically as a new visual form of feminist discourse? Uh, I'm curious um, about how that visual form is in dialogue with the archive in the way it uses archives, but also um, how the archive makes it available. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the 
some folks may have heard about the Barnard Conference on Sexuality because it was a big flashpoint in like um, the feminist movement. It sort of, in some ways, people say that as one of the instigating factors between the feminist sex wars, um, where feminists were sort of uh, at odds with each other around issues of um, is pornography harmful? Um, are BDSM sex practices harmful and necessarily patriarchal? Um, you know, and, and sort of issues around sex broadly, right? Um, and so uh, there were folks who sort of came down, uh, this conference wanted to be widely, talking about sexuality widely, right? And so then there were folks who were planning to speak um, who were sort of on the sex radical side and um, folks who were like, you know, anti-pornography, um, anti-BDSM sex practices, they were, they ended up protesting um, the conference um, and uh, the, it didn't end up that people were not allowed to speak, um, but this um, conference uh, diary, which was, um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, it got censored. And so no one received that on the day of the conference, which was sort of like the program for the conference. They instead only received all the protests um, pamphlets that were saying, you know, these women are bad, they're anti-feminist, uh, we shouldn't listen to them. And so that's the only thing that people like had in their hands on the day of the conference. And so what this um, diary, it's called the diary, um, but it's sort of a conference, uh, sort of multimedia conference program. Um, it's something that these three designers, um, Hannah Alderfair, Beth Jaker, and Mary Beth Nelson designed in coordination with the conference planning committee, which is like 24 women. Um, both uh, scholars, but also um, activists. That's sort of like the the praxis of the Barnard conferences that they do um, in general over, they still do them. It's called the Scholar and the Feminist. And the idea is to bring like people from the community, but also people like um, at Barnard together in conversation. Um, and so what the a diary was trying to do is um, not only document what was going to happen at the conference on that day and here are the workshops that are going to happen that you can go to but like what is our planning process especially since um the idea of sexuality is such a tension point in the community right now like let's take our meeting minutes and make them into diary entries and give people access to what our conversations were and access to like the resources we were thinking of um and so the artists sort of lovingly put all of that together um, different meeting minutes from their initial planning meetings. Um, they take a sort of, everyone writes a little statement that's part of the planning committee. Uh, people who are doing workshops, they ask them to send in postcards, um, sort of just like with a little statement about their workshop. And so all of this sort of gets collaged together and the artists are sourcing um, images um, from the women themselves, right? Having them write something, sending a postcard. Um, but then they're also sourcing things from the New York Public Library, Schomburg Collection. They're sourcing things from um, the Lesbian Herstory Archives, which is a longstanding um, lesbian archives. in. Um, it's now in Brooklyn, New York. At this time, it would have been um, in Manhattan and sort of the, the residence of the, the founders. Um, and so they're sourcing all this material um, and so at this point, you know, like the archives are in some, in some ways the guardian of um, material that you can go there and get the stuff. Um, less so, even though this, this it's like banned because it's like seen as controversial or unbefitting a feminist conference, but it's not really that like out there, right? The people um, uh, famously, uh, Judith Butler, author of Gender Trouble, gets... Um, their hands on a copy of this um, after in writing a review of the conference and says like, what was the big hullabaloo about this diary, right? Like, it's not really that big deal, but it's something that sort of gets these artists sort of thinking about this sort of tension point of sexuality such that in later work in the decade, they actually do bring in um, and collage um, like images of porn, um, like women's porn, feminist porn, and also more traditional porn together to sort of talk even more directly about this tension point of sexuality and attention around um, pornography and sourcing things and also still from the lesbian history archives, but also from like private collectors. And so like the starting the book with this idea that, you know, archives are a space that can sort of safeguard these um, contentious um, images that might be hard 
to find other places, but also sometimes it's the work of like individual collectors who sort of first amass these collections and bring them together um, of these sort of problematic or dangerous images um, that are hard to find. And so then the artists are deploying them. Yeah, and you, um, I'm trying to remember now, did you access a copy of the diary in a personal archive then? Uh, so I first got access to the diary because my dissertation director, Nancy K. Miller, was one of the planning members of the conference. Um, and so for um, many years, I, I worked off of her copy. Um, I've seen other copies. Um, there's been, um, I know at one point they wanted to re-digitize and, and make a website for the diary, but that I don't know why, but it, it didn't happen. There had been an issue of GLQ um, gay lesbian um, studies quarterly and they wanted to like make an issue um, uh, like make the whole thing available and they they weren't able but they reprinted some of the um, the pages um, in an issue um, back in 2011 um, but I also went um, to the Barnard um, Barnard's um, records um, of the conference and looked back at everything and so I saw like the original uncensored version. Cause what they ended up doing is so they, it didn't go out at the conference, um, but they eventually, since Barnard was like, we don't want to be associated with this. They like removed references to Barnard and sent out a censored version like months later in the mail to folks who were involved. Um, and so I saw the original version. I saw the censored version. I saw a version that was original that was like in the process of being censored. And so they were trying to like, there's a whole page and I talked about this in the book like a whole page of talking about like, you know, um, Barnard, like you know, center for talking about like the history of like women and women's studies at Barnard. And they were like trying to like line edit parts of it out to make it acceptable. And eventually just cross out the whole page. Um, and then the people receiving a copy receive like, you know, a, a gray sort of sh like image over that page, which is really weird too, because all the blank pages have like visual designs in them. So at this point, the artists are not at all involved because if they were, well, probably wouldn't have like been okay with the censorship, right? Artists usually come down on the side of free expression. Um, but you know, all of the blank pages, blank pages, so to speak, that are sort of open for people to have like visual designs in the background. So you had ones that had, like condoms floating in the background along the edges or, you know, other sorts of objects. Um, and so this sort of blankness was very, a very visible uh, blankness of, of censorship where they like you know there was a reproduction of a letter at the beginning welcoming people to participate and it had Barnard letterhead and they removed that um, and so there was a sort of um, sanitized version that went out uh, they did want to sort of reprint it even more broadly but they were never never able to really find um, it did get reprinted a few times but never able to really find a, a more broad printer who is interested in making it like even more widely visible even though it was such a it be it everyone mentions it like it got censored you know blah 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 and but then everyone talks about everything else at this conference and everything that happened in the feminist sex force and they never like talk or look or spend time with the diary itself or or with the artists who um do the diary and so that was sort of the what is this sort of like absent center totally yeah and like what else what else do we read by looking at the actual diary and all of the the artistic work they did on it. Um, so let's shift to talking about chapter two, and this is where you turn to comics art, looking at the artwork of Roberta Gregory and Lee Mars. I would love if you could talk about what Gregory and Mars brought to the space of LGBTQ artistic production and how their work made space for um, LGBTQ artistic production and community building. And then I've also been thinking about your own research for this chapter. I wonder if you could speak about um, what we can learn from the, the ways we need to do archival research and, and the ways we consider how archives are structured when we try to find these things in our research. Yeah, great. So uh, for this chapter, I sort of take a step back in time into the late 70s. Um, I also, there is also the 80s in this chapter as well, but the main comics I'm looking for at um, for both Roberta Gregory and Lee Mars are produced um, in the 70s in the sort of um, community, sort of the underground comics. And the, cent the center of that is San Francisco, California. Although 
Um, you know, Lee Mars is in the SF Bay area during this time and still um, Roberta Gregory is based at this time in Southern California. And so there are artists who are producing this work sort of in this, um, in constellation with this group that aren't like in the same geographic area. Um, but one of the things that they're doing with, um, they're sort of submitting comics to um, sort of like collective comics places and trying to sort of find their voice. Um, but there's not really a place at this point where they can really take time to explore what it means to be a woman and women's sexuality like at length right so they turn to making their own solo comics um and still circulating them within these forms but they're also interested then in you know telling a story of a woman sort of coming of age coming of age of her sexuality but also telling a story of like the feminist movement right and what the feminist movement both the possibilities but also the limitations and so i'm interested in how both of them are in some ways, mirrors of each other. So uh, Lee Marr sort of is speaking to the underground and saying, well, here's what feminism offers. Um, Roberta Gregory's is sort of like a, from a feminist insider perspective, here's what feminist off- feminism offers, but here's, so here's also what it precludes, right? Um, and here are the limitations of how, um, you know, if you are at this point a lesbian feminist or someone, um, both the the main characters are um, figuring out about their sexuality, but they're also in some ways, they're not just lesbian, but bisexual. Like they sort of engage, um, you know, with both um, people of both genders, um, but that there's only sort of limited space for that within the feminist movement at this time. This is a big sort of fracture point in the seventies, um, I sort of connect it to what's happening, you know, when Betty Friedan says that lesbians are lavender menace and, and all of that. And so I sort of, um, you know, find ways to connect, you know, what's on the page and what they're saying to like what's happening in the news. And they're like making fun of some of what that is about. Um, and so they're documenting the movement. They're documenting how it's a space of important community, um, like community building, right? Um, that these are uh, characters um, that are in some ways autobiographical avatars of the artists themselves find community within the feminist movement, find um, things that excite them, but also there's still a need for, uh, you know, a better space of community, right? And so in the 80s, I end the chapter talking about their work in gay comics, their work sort of making space. Uh, gay comics is a series uh, that, uh more explicitly allows there to be representations of um, from gay men, from lesbian women, from bisexual individuals. Um, There's some trans comics, but not as much. So that's not as much as they try to be capacious. There are still limitations to this space, um, but it allows both Gregory and Mars to um, do their do comics that they've wanted to serve on their own terms um talking about sexuality and to welcome in new artists right and so i sort of end the chapter bring it up to the 80s and think about then now that we have the network built like what's the possibility of that them um community building but then to turn to um like the archival questions so these uh in some ways across this book i'm talking about I'm not talking about like manuscripts, right? Like a lot of people think about archives and think about manuscripts. They think about things that exist in like one location. So I'm thinking about things that like exist like multiply, right? Um, and so when things exist in multiple locations, one of the things and what I'm talking about um, in this chapter is we need to start thinking not just in one archives, but thinking about across, right? Across multiple collections and how these things are collected in multiple collections um, to understand um, their historical positioning, right? So in some ways, these comics are on the edges of the underground, the underground scene in general. There was a lot of like men that sort of like, it was a boys club, right? Men were sort of at the center. They're making lots of comics, making lots of series that a lot of women didn't really feel comfortable or weren't really welcome in, right? So that was the center and they were sort of on the margin. Um, but then comics were also in some ways on the margins of feminist discourse as well. A lot of feminists, because they knew the underground was such, you know, male focused, were very suspicious of comics that were produced within the underground. Um, some of them thought that there was this long woman comic series called Women's Comics. Some of them thought that it was actually just men making it and like 
pretending, right? Um, and so they're on the margins of both of these discourses, but then that also echoes how they're collected, right? Um, so in some ways they're incompletely collected. Um, or when someone's trying to describe the whole collection, it talks about like, well, they're all sort of like sexually irreverent and blah, blah, blah in these ways. I'm like, well, but there's a difference between like the feminist work that's being done, the work that really Mars and Roberta Gray are doing than like the openly misogynistic work that some of the men are doing. Um, and so, you know, in looking across these different places that are collecting comics that are in different collections, you can sort of start to see how they're at this sort of intersection and what they're doing. There's, um, they're in collections where it's like more of a feminist collection and they're sort of early, but they're sort of in some ways still isolated from other sorts of um, later when there comes to be more and more women in comics. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things is like, um, obviously it's not always about like, I'm not saying you need to go to every archive where everything was ever collected. Um, but especially now that, you know, finding aids are digitized and more, you know, uh, you can sort of see, get a sense of, or even, you know, email someone and ask, get a sense of how things were collected that we want to sort of be aware of, um, the different structures within the different archives and how they might tell us a story about the materials there and how these different stories matter. Um, as I was saying, we talked about the first chapter, different collectors have different proclivities, right? And it's important and they've done good to save these materials, but they may have different interests and that might give us a sense also of how these materials were received in their time, who they mattered to. Um, what they end up in conversation with. And so we want to, as much as we're close reading the material, also like close read the archives um, and archives here, are, like very plural. Totally. I, I love that idea of close reading the archive. I mean, I think a lot about how the archive as like a space and an institution and whatever impacts how we see the things within it. But I was especially struck in this chapter, I think you noted, you know, what you've alluded to, the difference of finding these in a queer archive versus a comics archive and how they're kind of described and positioned differently. And that was so fascinating to me um, because with something like this, I wouldn't necessarily have expected that difference in those different kinds of archives. And it's a great reminder to like really pay attention to context, I think. Yeah, no, context is key all the time. Yeah, totally. Um, so then in chapter three, you shifted to writing about Alison Bechdahl. And I really enjoyed this because I wasn't familiar with the earlier work that you analyzed in a lot of depth. So could you talk about how Bechdahl's career illustrates the way she developed her own artistic vision through connecting to the collectivity of the feminist movement and documenting it in her comics? Uh, and maybe you could share what grassroots networks Bechdahl was part of and how we see that influencing her artwork. Yeah, so Alison Bechdel, in some ways, most, you know, known, visible, um, lesbian cartoonist, been highly celebrated, won a whole bunch of awards, Guggenheim, MacArthur, Genius Grant, um, you know, her comics have been come musicals that win a Tony Award, so um, very visible, um, but her origin story is um, less accessible in some ways, right, um, and she'll say, um, you know, she talks about it, right, um, uh, but you have to go back to the, like the newspapers, um, where she was sort of first, um, developing her comics to really see it. Cause some of this work didn't really get reprinted out of these contexts. So in the early eighties, um, she's newly graduated from college, um, Oberlin college. She moves to New York city. Um, I think she applies to grad school, doesn't get in. Um, but you know, which perhaps it's good for all of us cause it sets her on the path. Um, and so she's like making little comics and doodles to her friends. Um, she's going to Oscar Wilde Books, which is a, a famous LGBTQ bookstore in Greenwich Village. She's seeing early issues of gay comics that Lee Mars and Roberta Gregory published in. Um, and she's thinking, well, maybe I can make you know comics about lesbians. And she's just doing these little doodles to friends. And they're saying, well, how about you do these doodles in woman news which is a feminist newspaper which you're you know collaborating on you're working with you're doing like paste up and things and so she starts to do these comics for the newspaper but then she's also doing like illustrations um alongside articles um 
you know, uh, Sarah Schulman, who's also a well-known, um, uh, you know, queer thinker is also involved in women news. So there's actually a lot of articles by Sarah Schulman that have like a Alison Bechtel drawing at this time, which is fantastic. Um, she's also doing covers of, of the newspaper, um, including like their anniversary issue. There's some, um, um, which has like an Im image of like the woman news office. Um, she's also doing, and this is, you know, some things I find very fascinating to talk a lot about is like advertisements for the woman news collective that encourage people to come and join. And so this is something you'll see actually across a lot of periodicals when you start to look is that comics are used to welcome people into the collective. Like, you know, you have a lot of text on the page within the comics, you see it and it sort of um, grabs you and it brings you in and it makes you laugh. But so then they use that sort of same technique for like advertisements about the collective or you'll also see it used sort of broadly in like subscription form, subscription, subscribe to us and here's a comic. Um, and so she's doing all of these things. And so she's developing her own comic strip. It goes from panels to um, thematic strips. And then in early 86, she starts to unveil the cast of continuing characters that most people are aware of when they think of Dykes to watch out for, but it begins in sort of this like, um, smaller format so I was really interested in how all of these like things that weren't exactly dykes to watch out for that weren't exactly the comic but that were her using sort of the same cartooning methods and form are then informing her development of this comic right um, and how her working at a periodical is informing her development of the comic and what she's learning about like what's happening in the community right um, and so after a little bit of time, um, she starts to send it out to other periodicals and becomes involved in other periodicals. She eventually moves um, to Northampton, Massachusetts. And then from there, she moves to um, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And when she's in Minneapolis in the late 80s, she's working with Equal Time, which is a gay and lesbian um, newspaper, Minneapolis. And there she's still um, you know, in the collective, but she becomes production coordinator. So she's literally like in charge of the production of um you know the layout and everything um of the of the periodical and so it's you know these are the formative moments where she's you know developing her comic and sending it out everywhere um to all these newspapers and she's highly successful but also it's because she is working with these newspapers and understands like how to send out a comic to grassroots newspapers and have it work like she sends it out and gives them like here's different like layouts you can do and here's how you um, photograph it. So it like reads well, it prints well and you can read it well. Um, you know, here's a sliding scale of what you can like <laughs> give me money so I can like make a living as an artist. Um, and so, you know, all of this story is really the story of why she succeeds. Right. Um, of course, it's also, she's brilliant. Right. Um, she's so smart about documenting um, LGBTQ lesbian movements, but also she in some ways has access to a, like a national and even international because she's publishing in Canada and other places. Like she has a sense of what's happening in like gay and lesbian and feminist movements um, before there's the internet where we can start to get a sense of this network because she is, every time she publishes somewhere, ostensibly, usually they send her a copy of their newspaper, right? So in her own collection too, that they have now, it's at Smith College. Um, you know, a, a bunch of that is also copies of um, periodicals from elsewhere that have dykes to watch out for in them. And not only do they send her um, like copies of the newspaper, but then also we are sending letters about like, our collective really enjoyed your comic this month. Um, you know, and here, here are our notes. And we don't think you know, that these characters should stay together or, you know, if these two characters have a baby, it should definitely be, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, and so she's getting all of this information, right? Like, and it's all, uh, I think she at some point in the, it's just like, it all goes into the hopper, right? And she, it all sort of informs what she's working on, right? And so that's that community, right? That collectivity, all of that um, is part of why Dykes to Watch Out For is so brilliant, right? Because she has access to all of that and can then put it into the comic. I love that. Yeah. And like what we learn about community through close reading is like really, really amazing there. Um, so then continuing these threads of community in chapter four, you explore the work of visual queer theor theorist Gloria Anzaldúa. 
could you explain her artistic practice for listeners? Um, and also, you make a really important point in this chapter about how women of color have incorporated the spirit of collectivity that we celebrate in grassroots archives within their personal collections. So I would love if you could speak more about uh, Gloria Anzaldúa's personal collections and what they show us in addition to her artwork. Yeah, great. So Gloria Anzaldúa is someone um, who listeners may be familiar with for her like books of text. Um, this Bridge Call My Back, which is a collection she did in 1981 with Sherry Moraga. Um, it's writings by women of color um, sort of broadly across um, the spectrum, although both of them are Latina Chicana. Um, and it was just famously popular, but went out of print. Um, the initial feminist press folded. Um, they printed with a new feminist press, new women of color feminist press um, uh, kitchen table, but it's um, it's gone in and out of print for many years. Um, now it's with SUNY Press and so now it's with like a university press. Um, and it just had its 40, 40th anniversary edition, but something that's been, even when it's out of print, there were like pirate editions on um, Tumblr that were circulating. So it's something that people have been reading and rereading and I'm, you know, I'm teaching it this fall. Um, and it's certainly a, it's a really important space, um, um, of women of color talking about their lives. There's also, um, importantly for them, a bibliography where they document and bibliographies are super important, especially before the internet for, um, social movements to document like earlier and prior like information and like make that available for people. So there's like a bibliography in there that says here's, you know, earlier women of color organizing here. If you want to go read where people are publishing about the stuff in small press outlets, here's, here's that as well. Um, and so all of this is in this bridge going back. She also in the later eighties, um, she did, um, Borderlands, um, uh, which is sort of her uh, sort of memoir, but personal essays, poetry um, about what it means to be a Chicana woman. She develops all these um, uh, different concepts about what it means to sort of like live in the borderlands between um, taking all these different identities. Um, and then when she was, when she'd go and then talk about these books um, or other work that she was doing, she would always um, have sort of visual references that were her own drawings. And so, um originally it was her when she's in classroom you like drawing on a chalkboard and she draw out her concepts as drawings um but then eventually she started to make these uh transparencies that were drawings um and use them like during talks and not only just you know point to them but she like retraced the lines of the drawing and for each concept it wasn't just having like one drawing it was having multiple and i've also so her um, collection is at the University of Texas at Austin in the Nettie Lee Benson Latin American collection. And um, so they have the transparencies and they're all, uh, they're not in, they're not in any particular order or saved in any particular order, but she would use them in different orders. And there were, so there are videos of her giving talks and I could see her using the same transparencies, but in different ways, in different forms. Um, and so there was not like sort of like one, like these transparencies are for this talk and these are for that talk, you know? And so um, it was a way of her drawing people in, making visible for them her ideas, but also um, her drawings are in some ways they're like, you know, at their core, they're like stick figures, right, of 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 bodies. And they're so they're simplistic in a way to welcome people in and to have them imagine what their own models might be. Um, Anzal Du is someone who's talked a lot and has been documented in interviews talking about how, you know, um, you know, drawing for her was something that she's done over the course of her whole life. And her ideas start with drawings. And people have talked about her drawing as of a drafting practice, but I was also interested in then how her drawing becomes part of her way of like community building, right? Of her connecting with her audience, of her encouraging them to think about what their ideas were. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, you know, um, talking about um, these drawings. And then of course, then I also spend time talking about, um, you know, as part of her collection, her overall collection, there's so many things in her collection that are, you know, from her, her own manuscripts, drafts. I mean, there's people who are now working on like all the unpublished stuff that, you know, and we have a lot of, um, she passed away in 2004, but we, there's a lot of been a lot of great books about her coming out 
Um, but also her collection is a snapshot of, you know, the movement of women around her. Um, and there's more, um, you know, there's stuff that she's uh, collecting clippings, right? Um, there's tarot readings of individuals, um, all sorts of community, um, a sense of like, you know, this is a larger community that, that she was involved in. Um, and the sense is like, you know, if you don't save it, who will? Like you can't, you can't depend on anyone else to save it. Um, you know, and her collection is in an archives. Um, but one of the things I do in this chapter um, is I, I talk a lot about um, uh, archival collection uh, or archival project I really love, which is Maria Cotera's Chicana Por Mi Raza. Um, and so Maria Cotera, her mom um, was an amazing Chicana activist sort of like in an earlier moment. Um, well, you know, but she started in an earlier moment in the 60s and 70s and actually is someone that Ansel Dua brought into her classes when she was a grad student at UT Austin. Um, and so a lot of these um, Chicana activists, they're, you know, the archives have not come knocking on their door and asking for their collections. Um, and also for these women, their collections are something that are still very active to them, right? So someone's coming knocking on your door and saying, hey, can we have your stuff? Like, this is your stuff. Um, and so she's gone um, through... Um, through these personal connections and gone through and digitized um, like collections from these women, but then leaves them in their, their, the residence. Um, but, you know, that work really shows, um, you know, how through one person there's, you know, all of this, you know, community documentation, what's happening in the movie, learn not just about the one person's lives, but about sort of the life of activism around them. Um, but also sort of goes to show, you know, how much, um, you know, is out there that's not in um, in archives or, um, you know, was not thought, no one thought to reach out to these women to collect this stuff. And so it sort of also explains why they are them themselves saving it too, because they know that there's not like um, someone out there, you know, going through and saving that material at the same time necessarily. Totally. Yeah. Um and then I guess speaking of like making an archive, um, your final chapter looks at Nan Golden's photography. Uh, so what does Golden's work to say? Uh, um, what does Golden's work say to us about community? And how does this visual material give us a picture of community that we might otherwise miss? How do her artistic choices underline a commitment to collectivity and community and how does she like use images to make community visible in ways we wouldn't see otherwise yeah so nan golden um she started photographing in the 70s um and then photographing throughout the 80s and um as at first interested in like uh photographing sexual liberation among her community of artists and friends um but then in the 80s, you know, the, uh, the emergence of the HIV AIDS um, epidemic means a lot of her members of her community start to get sick and, and die. And so, you know, even these earlier photographs that she's doing become so much wrapped into, um, like, you know, what's happening around them. And so it changes, right? These photographs quickly sort of change for her in their meaning. And so it's sort of thinking about... Um, you know, uh, documenting, right? Like she's very interested in documenting a lot. And all of these artists in some ways are um, in documenting in their work, right? Like trying to sort of make visible their community. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of like, there becomes sort of layers of meaning to these photographs, right? They're still about sexual liberation, right? They're still about that, certainly, but then they're also about what's going on in the community. And so she... Originally, um, her long-standing project that's gotten her a lot of attention, um, it's called The Ballad of Sexual um, Dependency, and it's her taking these photographs and putting them into slideshows um, that then um, are shown in museums and bars, other places, set to music. Um, but then as it gets bigger, she then makes a book. So it's a more accessible version of this that other people can see and welcome into the community. And so I'm interested in that book as sort of like, you know, for people who are more outside the community, more outside the art world, how they sort of take in. And so then she has to frame it for folks with like an opening essay, but then also by giving us um, 
like captions um, at the the bottom of these photos to give us a sense of who these people are and how they're in relationship with each other. So I'm interested in how sort of the project moves and shifts and changes in that sort of structural way. And then, you know, um, when um, the HIV AIDS crisis is sort of, um, you know, it's becoming something you can't really ignore anymore. She gets asked to curate a show. And so she invites all those, um, you know, artists who are in her photographs to produce new work for the show. Um, and so it's another way of like, you know, she's a photographer, she's taking photos, but she's also the way that her photos work is an act of curation, of editing, of sequencing. And here she's then doing some of the same work, um, but inviting artists to sort of come in and make their own work. Um, and so interested in how she's, you know, um, they're participating in what becomes like the first like um, visual aids day without um, art um, where, um, you know, you recognize the, the um, how much LGBTQ artists have been very vital to the artistic community by um, like not letting your art be seen <laughs> on the day um, in um, December, sort of recognize sort of this loss of the community. Um, but she, you know, does this um, this uh, exhibit called Witnesses Against Our um, Vanishing um, and is very sort of um, explicit, right, um, about this exhibit. And this is also um, sort of I began the book with the feminist sex wars and um, the feminist sex wars being something that there's a big, you know, to do. And then this diary gets sort of forgotten or gets censored and people don't see it. And so then there's um, this big outburst um, about government funding for work by LGBTQ people. Jesse Helms, you know, a famous uh, villain, <laughs> political villain, um, is railing against this work. Um, there is an essay that's in the catalog for the exhibit, and that's what's going to, at this point, receive the government funding um, by artist David Von Rubich, which is very um, vitriolic against, um, you know, the government neglect against um, the religious discrimination um, by the Catholic Church against LGBTQ folks, and um, and so it it. Um, it like challenges the funding for this show. Um, eventually they're able to work out a compromise. The funding for the show doesn't go to the catalog. Um, the catalog still is allowed to circulate. Um, but I spend a lot of time thinking about and, and close reading um, elements of the catalog, um, particularly how she frames um, and presents the artwork from individuals um, who have died of AIDS. Um, in the catalog and how she can only show like one piece, one work from each artist. And so for those, she shows um, like images of them. Right. And then she writes a little um, statement about them because they can't write about themselves at this point. And so I'm, I'm interested in sort of the, the um, her memorialization. Right. And so how, um, you know, this, these long running friendships, um, how they sort of grow and change with the movement, um, but then also how she turns to um, make sure they, they're not forgotten, right, um, in, in the midst or in face of this, this terrible disease that isn't, you know, you know, the government doesn't care at this point, right, yeah. <laughs> about it. Yeah. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I am really curious about how you hope your book inspires folks to do research differently about queer identity and within archives. What do these artists ask us to look for when we explore the archives of queer lives and what questions should we bring with us when we enter archives? I think one of the things, yeah, I want people to look, right, um, and to look broadly um, and, um to look at images also um, a lot of times our first engagements with archives are textually like we're keyword searching we're searching for something like that um, and there's still not really good ways to search for images there people are developing like digital practices and things like that and so i want um, folks to be aware of uh, how do we look for images 
Um, what does it mean? What work does do these visual images do? Um, what's the role of community, right? Like if we're looking for what one individual, like what's sort of the story around them? Um, who collected it, right? How did it arrive there? Um, who collected something similar somewhere else, right? Um, what is collected in a university collection versus what's collected in a grassroots collection? And what are the different stories there um, based on the communities that form those collections, um, right? Um, so I think all of these things matter. Um, and of course it is uh, immense privilege to be able to travel to these archives. Um, but we're also at a moment now where some of these things are being digitized um, or, you know, some of the materials themselves are being digitized. So there's, there's both, um, you know, um, open access, but also proprietary databases. Um, but, you know, there's also, um, you know, periodicals where the people who are involved in them are digitizing them themselves and making them open access to us. Um, so we're in this sort of very rich moment where there's a lot um, there, but to be aware of and to think again then about um, the archive itself, right? And think about the collections themselves, um, not just to be critical, but also to um, recognize and really value the work of archivists. A lot of um, these collections are there because, um, you know, as someone who is involved perhaps also in social justice movements, um, perhaps. Um, even in more uh, traditional archives have that sort of activist minding and who said this is something important that we should um, retain, that we should uh, seek funding to process, right? Uh, archives are always understaffed. There's always backlogs of um, processing backlogs. And so I want to, you know, tip my hat to all of this labor and work um, and to be really mindful um, of the research we do right, um, and how we research and all of the people, you know, not just the individual that we're studying, all the people around them in that community, but all, and all the people who make that work visible for us, right? Um, so, you know, those are some of the things I'm thinking of. I'm sure there's more um, there, of course. Oh, but that's a really, really fantastic start. Thank you so much. Um, once again, today, I've been speaking with Margaret Galvin, author of Invisible Archives, published by the University of Minnesota Press in September 2023. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network.